Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Practicing Mind Podcast with Tom Sterner. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Practicing Mind, What I Learned from Coaching Podcast. I'm glad you're here. As always, I want to remind you that even though here at the Practicing Mind Institute, we have quite a few show ideas in the queue, I really like having the content of the show driven by your questions. So you can get those questions to me by just emailing asktom at tomsterner.com. That's A-S-K-T-O-M at tomsterner.com. And I should mention that, of course, I'm not going to include any names with the questions so you don't have to worry about someone you know saying, geez, I can't believe you actually asked that. Also, while I have your ear, I just want to let you know that my new website is up. That's right, the new tomsterner.com is live. So I hope you will take a moment and check it out. And if you're feeling that I might be someone you'd like to talk to one-on-one, well, that's where you can make it happen. And coming up on today's show is the four S-words, what they are, what they mean, and how you can use them. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So today I'd like to talk about the four S-words that I wrote about in The Practicing Mind, and they are simplify, small, short, and slow. And later in the show, I want to talk about how these apply to one of the questions that came into the Ask Tom email by a parent. So briefly, when you are working at a specific activity, a project, some sort of skill development, or even an element of personal transformation, the first thing you should consider doing is to simplify it by breaking it down into small components. When you set goals that are too far beyond your reach, it creates frustration and many times it can invite failure, which then makes you begin to doubt your abilities. Simple goals are easy to achieve and they propel you forward with a certain feeling of effortlessness. They build confidence, and you don't suffer the mental fatigue that comes from long stretches of effort. Simplify and small, for me, are really two sides of the same coin. We have a tendency to look at a task that we have to accomplish, a skill that we need to build, or a goal that we set from the perspective of its entirety. In the practicing mind, I gave an example of having to clean the garage. In your mind, it's easy to see this task from the perspective of not only the physical labor involved, but all the decisions that are going to have to be made. Should I keep this? Should I keep that? Will I ever need this again? Is it a mistake to get rid of it? Etc. The magnitude of work can feel overwhelming and easily push you in the direction of procrastination. But if you simplify the task by looking at just one small area of the garage, perhaps a corner, and say to yourself, today I'm only going to focus on this corner, the amount of effort you need to expend seems much more inviting. Now, you have to give yourself permission to ignore the rest of the garage and look at the cleaning and organizing as a process. Remember, what we are aiming for is present moment functioning. We want to be absorbed in the present moment, in the process of what we are doing right here and right now. If we can achieve that, our interpretation and so our experience of the situation changes. 
The goal is much more easily reached because we have not overloaded ourselves with too much to do in too little time. Now that brings up the next S word, which is short. It is very helpful to set manageable time frames when you are dividing a task up. For example, you may say, I'm going to work for one hour. I give myself permission to stop at one hour. When you do this, you don't start the task with a feeling of uncertainty as to how long this is going to take because you have decided how much of your time you're going to give to it right now. This is an important concept because decision-making and in particular uncertainty can be quite fatiguing. Once you make a decision and are committed to it, so much of the anxiety and the resistance to making a move drops away. In this example, by making the decision as to how long you were going to work at a task that you may feel is undesirable, you eliminate that feeling of uncertainty regarding how long you were going to be expending your energy. Before going any further, I want to give an example of how this formula applies to other activities, such as, say, losing weight. Now, most of the time when we decide we want to lose weight, the first thing we do is pick a number. Let's just say that is 15 pounds. That number, 15, is what we're going to hang on to. We subconsciously see the weight loss effort in its entirety. We think of the amount of effort, the discipline, the exercise, the giving up of certain foods, all in one mental gulp. That creates a feeling of exhaustion and dread right from the beginning. We also constantly compare where we are at in the process to that number. In my opinion, this is a misuse of your goal. Attachment to the goal can work against you because instead of inspiring you, it can serve to remind you of what you have yet to accomplish. But if you simplify that by breaking it down into small increments, it begins to feel much more manageable. If you make a decision to work at, say, just losing two to three pounds in the first seven days by modifying your lifestyle, it begins to feel doable. Your chance of succeeding at that goal are much higher and that builds confidence and reinforces motivation. This is true in any goal endeavor. When I was very competitive in golf and I was working on grooving specific components in my golf swing, I would routinely simplify the motions by breaking the swing down into small increments. If I was standing in front of a mirror and working on what my feet were doing in the swing, I would make maybe 30 swings watching only my feet. I wouldn't pay attention to what my left arm was doing at the top of the swing. Why? Because your brain can learn anything new and habitualize the new behavior very quickly if you don't overload it with too much information for each pass. By simplifying the swing and mentally and intentionally practicing small segments, the end result is that change comes much more quickly. By breaking your weight loss down into manageable segments, you are doing the same thing. When you step on the scale, you are not comparing the number you see to the 15 total. You're only referencing a few pounds. It's much more comfortable and it doesn't beat up your confidence if you come up short, say, a pound. Again, because your immediate goal is attainable, your motivation stays high and you may even find that you exceed your target weight of two to three pounds. The last word is slow and I left this to last because this is a very powerful word in terms of present moment functioning. It is difficult, if not impossible, to do something intentionally slow 
without being absorbed in the present moment and in the process of doing it. Try intentionally brushing your teeth very slow. Try walking across the room intentionally slow. Try eating and chewing your food intentionally slow. You see, when you move into slowness, your mind has to let go of the subconscious programming and it has to give itself over to you to direct it. Normally, this is not the case. You don't think about walking across the room because it is handled for you. When you're brushing your teeth, you're thinking about 10 different things you're going to do that day. Slowness is king in my mind, and I am personally at war with speed. The most impressionable experience I had regarding slowness was a situation that I wrote about in The Practicing Mind. During my days as a concert piano technician, it was not uncommon for me to be overworked and overbooked. I'm sure that's a scenario very familiar to most of you. I was in very high demand because of the credentials I possessed at the time, and my territory was through four states and between private work, concert work, and remanufacturing work, I was always pressed for time. One day, when I was feeling particularly exhausted and dreading the day ahead of me, I decided I needed to manufacture some way of feeling in control of my life and having a day off, even if I was at work. So what I came up with was to be intentionally slow. Now I should preface this by saying that that feeling came with a commitment that was born out of a total surrender to whatever the consequences might be. In other words, if people got angry with me because I was late, that was just too bad. I needed a break. My first call was the concert hall. I had to prepare two grand pianos for a show that evening. The larger nine-foot concert grand was for the guest soloist who would play with the orchestra. The smaller six-foot grand was in the orchestra. Normally, after parking my van, I would almost run to the concert hall, which was about a block away, carrying all of my tools. This time, though, before I left the van, I got rid of every timepiece I had, like my cell phone. I didn't want anything telling me what time it was because I knew that I would be tempted to let go of my resolve. When I got out of the van, I walked with a very deliberate, slow step, concentrating fully on my walking motion. I really can't imagine what the people in the street were thinking. After letting myself into the concert hall, I had my own key. I walked up the steps to the stage, one by one, paying close attention to the action of my feet. After going through the stage door, I walked very slowly and deliberately to the concert grand. Now normally, what I would do in this situation would be to drop my toolbox on the floor, open it up, grab two fistfuls of tools and felt mutes, and start preparing the piano for the tuning process as quickly as possible. My body would be as tight as the strings on the piano as I tried to work as quickly as possible. Then, as I began tuning, I would continue working at the fastest pace I could muster, but still deliver the results that were needed. When finished, I would grab all the tools out of that piano, leave the toolbox where it was, and scurry through the chairs in the orchestra to the second piano. Then I would start the process again. When finished, I would throw the tools back in the toolbox, run back to the van, and be on my way to the next call. But this time was different. What I did was gently place my toolbox on the floor, very deliberately and very slowly open the lid. I took each tool out, one at a time, and placed it inside the piano. 
I went back to the toolbox and repeated this until all the tools necessary for the work were in the piano. I then very slowly and meticulously prepared the piano for the tuning process. Now what was most interesting to me, but not surprising, was that my inner voice was in a panic and screaming at me, telling me to stop this nonsense and pick up the pace or suffer the consequences. I totally ignored it, which I'll admit wasn't easy, and said, I'm here doing this now, and that's all there is in the world. Now what began to happen was unexpected. My breathing slowed down, and I think it actually occurred, because I think I usually was holding my breath or breathing very irregularly. My body lost tension and became completely relaxed. My accuracy in the tuning process increased quite measurably. I didn't realize how my need for speed had created so much lost motion in the process. These speed-induced errors, they had to be corrected as I worked to set tension on each string, and that took time that I wasn't noticing. By the way, there were about 235 strings that needed to be attended to during this tuning process, and they had to be tuned to absolute perfection. Now, when I finished the first piano, and this will sound crazy, I repacked each tool into my toolbox one at a time as slowly as I could. I then picked up the toolbox, walked very slowly through the chairs, and set it on the floor gently next to the second piano. As I began work on the second piano, my body and my mind felt completely different than usual. And I thought to myself, this feeling is totally worth whatever trouble I get into later. When I was finished, again, I very deliberately packed each tool one at a time back in the toolbox, closed the toolbox, made my way very slowly out the building and back to my van. When I got in the van, I didn't look at my phone, but when I turned the key and started the van, the radio clock came on. When I looked at that, I was totally dumbfounded. So little time had passed that I was certain the clock had to be wrong. So I immediately checked my phone and to my surprise, they both agreed. Now keep in mind that the work I had just finished, I had done hundreds of times over the past 20 years. I was well aware of how long it took to complete and yet I had shaved over 40% off the normal time. I continued this mindset through the rest of the day and I have repeated it many times in my life. One of the things I realized is what I stated earlier, and that is the speed we imagine we are gaining by our normal frantic pace is an illusion. We create so much wasted motion and internal turmoil by this illusion, and even though it makes us feel awful, we convince ourselves that it must be gaining us something, that it must be productive. To the contrary, the performance enhancement that comes from a total immersion into the present moment cannot be denied. They have been measured by science and are a standard teaching in peak performance in sports psychology. You are always operating at your highest potential when you are fully immersed in the present moment. I want to wrap up today's episode uh, by reading a letter that came into the Ask Tom email account. And it's from a very kind woman who shares her thoughts with me about rereading The Practicing Mind multiple times in the last three months as a new mom. And she goes on to say that everything feels different with small children, as even you describe in your book, meaning me. I also have two daughters, meaning her. One is five months and the other is two. 
Being deliberately slow feels more difficult than ever, as I feel I cannot help but multitask with them continuously needing from me. I always feel I am in high speed just hearing one cry and trying to get to them as soon as possible. I often use your advice to address feelings long after the moments of high emotion have passed. Do you have any other tips for me, their mom, and or have you discovered any other ways to help your children keep their present-minded thinking? There she is referring to a point that I made in my first book, The Practicing Mind. So let me offer a few thoughts here that I hope will be helpful. As I have stated many times, everything in life is a skill. And when we experience a sense of struggle, as I have also said in the past, all that is really doing is letting us know that we are up against our personal threshold in that particular situation. And we can interpret that sense of struggle in a negative way, but it is really just an indicator that we are in the process of mastering something that we haven't yet mastered. We don't notice things that we are good at because they're relatively effortless. For this young mother having a newborn and a toddler, she is pushing into an area that she hasn't yet mastered. In order to do that, she has to be in that situation. Obviously, if I asked her if you could handle this situation any way you want, would you like to be good at it? She would say yes. In order to get good at it, you have to be in the turmoil. That is your opportunity to execute a strategy that you have formulated at a time when you were not in the turmoil, a strategy that you feel will give you the results that you're looking for. So using what we have talked about today, I would say that in terms of dealing with the situation mentioned, your first move is to simplify the situation by breaking it down into small sections. So what do I mean? Don't get pulled into seeing the situation in its entirety. Think more like, I have a strategy for how I would really like to handle this, so I'm going to practice executing that strategy for just the next several minutes. Or you could even say for just this one momentary demand for my attention. It's easy with this type of situation to subconsciously look at the whole time period, like my next break isn't going to come for two hours when one of the kids is down for a nap. That type of thinking is immediately followed with the unconscious thought of, I am here and that time is way out there. How am I going to make it to then? That creates an interpretation of this moment that is not what we want. Years ago, a family member called me and said, I need some help. I tried to be present moment yesterday and I couldn't do it. I responded that the problem with that sentence was the word yesterday. It takes years of effort to always be in the present moment, if it is even possible living outside of an environment like an ashram. Starting with a much smaller goal like being present moment oriented for the next 15 minutes, then relax and come back to it after another 15 minutes. And finally, don't judge your performance. You can analyze it for reference, but telling yourself, I'm not very good at this, has to be coming from an expectation that you have imagined almost always without any real data behind it. One of the things that you should use to facilitate this process is what I call a rescue mantra. This is something I will discuss in greater detail in another episode, but briefly have a quick phrase you can mutter to yourself, such as, this is when the fun starts. 
That helps to stop the emotional flow of the situation and pull you back into the routine that you have come up with outside of the turmoil. Our reactions to situations are usually caused by subconscious programming that fires off automatically and involuntarily. Having a rescue mantra more or less short circuits that and gives you a moment to get ahead of yourself mentally and emotionally so that you can practice a different reaction. It is so important to not judge. That is part of the DOC program. Do observe correct. Each repetition brings ever-increasing proficiency. Now, I could speak on this for quite a while, but we're running out of time, and I want to comment on keeping the kids centered in present moment thinking. It has been widely published at this point that children's personalities are pretty set in the first seven years of life. Their subconscious mind is operating in what would be called a hypnotic state, and it is just absorbing programming. The programming is coming from what is happening around them. Now, this isn't very difficult to understand because as tribal entities, we learn how to function in the culture by observation. And this can be very good, but it could also be quite bad. By what you are doing in refining yourself, you are teaching your children the same programming. You are teaching them that this is the normal way to process a situation like this. So my advice is to just keep that awareness and they will naturally take the way you process life by functioning in the present moment as their own software system. Well, that about wraps it up for today. Thanks for stopping by and I'll talk to you soon.